The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. It's a marathon test of skill and stamina, with blanket media coverage, and by the end of it, you'll be thoroughly exhausted. Yes, the Leveson Inquiry has come to an end, for the moment at least, and we examine all the implications with the former director of the Press Complaints Commission, Stig Abel. Plus, former Heat editor Sam Delaney tells us why the celebrity magazine market isn't what it used to be, and Vicky Frost is here to make sense of the madness that is the BBC's Olympic schedule. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Joining me in the studio is Sam Delaney, former Heat editor and now a presenter on TalkSport, among many other things, and Media Guardian reporter Lisa O'Carroll. But first, Dan Sabber, The Guardian's head of media and tech, talked to Stig Abel, the former director of the Press Complaints Commission and our partner at the Pagefield Consultancy, about the Leveson inquiry that drew to a close this week. He began by asking him about the impact of the inquiry into press ethics and practices. The main thing that to take from it is almost the existence of the inquiry itself, the process, the fact that people have been summoned, uh, the fact that editors who, historically, not all of them, the editor of this paper is rather more visible than most, but most editors sort of cower in their offices, plotting in, uh, away. And so getting them in front of uh, a judge under oath to answer for the decisions they make, that process, I think, has been rather healthy, actually. Yes, I think the process has been a very welcome one, but that cannot be enough in itself, can it? Look, phone hacking was a very serious issue. We've seen the charging decisions, of course, this week, but that's also illegal. You know, what else, you know, must the press do? You know, has the sort of case for the prosecution, if you will, which is built up through the testimony of the likes of the McCanns or Chris Jeffries or even some various celebrities, Hugh Grant, how strongly was that made and how deep, how great does the response need to be? I think it was strongly made. I mean, one of the features of of the inquiry, of course, is that it was set up because of phone hacking, but it can't actually look at phone hacking in any detail whatsoever. And then part two, which is the bit that says it's going to look at phone hacking, may never happen at all. So the phone hacking was, in some ways, a beneficial cause of this in terms of of societal perspective. But since then, the case was made very strongly for individual cases of where people had been badly treated by the press. That was, I think, very powerfully made. The difficulty with all of this is to draw systemic conclusions from individual cases. From what I've seen, there's been a lot of definition of, uh, of specific issues. There hasn't been a great deal of wide-ranging suggestions and ideas for solutions. So the thing that Leveson now have to, has to do, having sat for a year on this, is to pull something out of the hat. Let's look at some specifics. Should the sort of PCC or what have you, should it have the power to find newspapers? And at the moment, what seems to be on offer is this sort of curious hybrid, isn't it? That the PCC might have the sort of power to find newspapers where there are serious breach of standards, but not in response to individual cases, which means the next Chris Jeffries still can't go to the PCC and seek compensation. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, I think that this is one of the things that we, when I submitted uh, to Leveson back in September, we sort of discussed very clearly the need for the benefit of some financial penalty. I think the historic problem with fines has been if on individual cases, through the complaint side of things, 
if you start introducing fines, it can slow the process right down. You bring in all sorts of appeals and lawyers and actually the, the bread and butter work of a complaints mechanism is getting fast uh, redress. But we're a bit past that point now, aren't we, Stu? Well, no, that's the point. And I think that's why it's actually sensible to draw a distinction between individual complaints and standards more broadly. If you look at a lot of the things that are held against the PCC, the sort of examples of Brad Press behaviour that are cited legitimately as to why there's a problem, very few of them were ever formulated in complaints to the PCC. So but, but isn't that, with respect, isn't that because, in the sort of McCann's case, isn't that because they knew they were, there was all these inaccuracies, but to get compensation, you, you had to go to the courts. It was not yeah, an option. There's, yeah, but there's a distinction between fines and compensation. I mean, there's a big difference between fines and compensation. Fines are sort of a punitive thing for newspapers to have to pay. Compensation is, uh, is, is to make up for the damage to, to individuals. So, so my point, which I'm sort of labouring to make, is that I think there is room for fines for serious systemic standards problems. They could be triggered by individual cases. So the Chris Jeffries case is a very good example. Say he didn't make a complaint to the new regulatory body, but the same situation arose, the new regulatory body would have the ability to go in and say, how did you get this so badly wrong? How were your internal processes so either ignored or insufficient? And in light of that, you'll have to do two things, change your processes and pay a, a punitive fine. Now, what that does... So you're in favour of, fi- of fines, right? Yeah. But, OK, but what about compensation? What, what, do you, what, what are you thinking there? Because at the moment, the proposals, the model advanced by... You know, Lord Black and Lord Hunt, you know, doesn't have any sort of proposals for compensation. That's left to the courts or maybe some some other body. You know, you, know, you have the advantage of not, not not working for the PCC anymore, so you're not responsible for it. You don't have to defend it. You can tell us what you really think. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, I think that there's a there's a beneficial uh, element to do with fines. I think the problem with compensation is you could render the the regulatory, the new regulator, a bit of a small claims court. Uh, you could actually effectively carry with it all of the dangers of the court system, which is it takes a lot of time, there's a lot of uh, debate, a lot of satellite litigation, and money is a very major reason for that. So I'm not entirely convinced. I mean, speaking personally, I'd be happy to be convinced, but I have not currently been convinced that actually compensation through the complaints mechanism of a regulator is necessarily a hugely workable proposition. I think that Levinson's talked about a slightly different approach, hasn't he? Or certainly he's aired this idea, perhaps some kind of some kind of tribunal system, a arbitral sort of li- arm. Yeah, the arbitral arm, some yeah. sort of libel and privacy tribunal yeah. working analogously, if you will, to an employment tribunal. That would be like a court, or in his in his vision anyway, it would be like a court. It would be lower cost, uh, 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 lawyer-wise, and would have the power to sort of, uh, well, levy fines or indeed sort of levy compensation, if you will. Now, that sounds very attractive. In fact, I'm already taken in by it the way I describe it. But is, that, vi- is that viable? Is that something Levison should propose? I think it's, it's right to look at it. I know The Guardian is very excited about it because, uh, you know, The Guardian quite rightly wants to campaign for libel reform and, and the problem with the libel system as it currently is, is it's very unwieldy it's cost a lot of money and people settle rather than fight legitimate cases all of that seems to me to be perfectly legitimate and this is a chance to look at it the couple of risks that but it's also too expensive hang on for, for sort of or too expensive potentially for ordinary people to go to law against a newspaper now you know, if you're Christopher Jeffries or any of these folks, you've got to take a CFA. You've got to go on a no-win, no-fee basis, right? That 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 yeah. is that is risky, and that's not right, is it? Well, it's less well, it's less risky because you're not you're not on the hook for costs if you're if you're on a CFA. 
I mean, I think that the danger of the arbitral system is, is, is firstly, it is, the, it is another version of the court. So it's very easy to say, theoretically, it'll be a lot cheaper. Who's going to pay for it? Are you going to make it compulsory? If you make it compulsory, then it will have to be uh, an arm of the court because people have human rights that they have to be allowed access to the judicial system. And the other question I think is relatively interesting with it, which is, if this is going to happen, it's surely got to happen across the board. It can't happen just for newspapers. I.e. It can't just be part of a newspaper's regulatory system. Otherwise, uh, what about NGOs? What about charities? What about broadcasters who find the li- who uh, struggle with libel laws and would rel- want a quick and dirty tribunal system so it can be helped de- dealt with fairly? Uh, they wouldn't benefit from that at all. And it seems to me that you have a perfectly legitimate discussion that actually libel would benefit greatly from a new a new tribunal system which is cheap and dirty, which gets things done at low cost, particularly for claimants, so more people can get access to justice. And also uh, newspapers and broadcasters and other individuals are not incommoded by vast costs. But if you're going to make that argument, that to me is an argument for reforming the libel law and creating a tribunal system within the libel courts to plug it into a regulator, a new regulator, an actual regulator, uh, seems to me to be... I can see the attraction of it, and you can make an argument that it might make more people sign up to that regulator, which is a positive. But to me, if you argue strongly in favour of it, you're arguably, actually arguing in favour of something that should be much broader than the newspaper industry. If you're going to create such a court or such a tribunal, that'll need some kind of legislation. And, and, and that sort of brings on to the question, I think, a slightly broader question. Will the judge propose a Leveson bill? And, and that immediately sort of gives at least half the press with the Mail, the Telegraph, uh, uh, News International, I think gives them all the vapours. Yeah. Should the judge back off because of the row that's likely to come? Or should he consider exploring ideas like the Irish model, you know, the statutory underpin where where there is a law that, that recognises a regulator but lets the press get on with it? Yeah, I, mean, I think he's got to look at it. I, th- I think it would be incredibly blinkered, actually, to go through all this process and not look at this. And there's no suggestion he's obviously going to, to look at it. You know, one of the clear motivating factors for him as he's, he endeavours to repeat endlessly almost is that he wants his report to have some degree of resonance after he stops the process. So he doesn't want it to sit presumably on Roy Greenslade's second mm. shelf to gather dust and to peer down think, on I Roy. I think Jeremy Paxman thought the second shelf would be a bit high. Yeah, but, anyway. yeah, yeah. but he doesn't want that. And so he wants something that has a, has a punch and something will have a real effect. And so the idea of a Leveson Act clearly would carry with it. I mean, I think you've got to look at it. I think that the the risk against it, which is why I think ultimately a full statutory framework, I think is very unlikely, is 20 years ago you could have the debate because you could define what was a newspaper and you could have an argument that, well, okay, we're going to list all the newspapers and we're going to force them into something. With the advent of technology, uh, it really is an impossible ask now for universality, for guaranteeing what constitutes a newspaper-like service. And also there's the issue of jurisdiction. You know, the Guardian website is a, is a global phenomenon. You know, I was looking at you, you live blog stuff in America, you live blog stuff with American Time on the side of it. You know, you are, the mail is probably more widely read, I'd imagine, in the US than it is in the UK by number. So there are all sorts of now practical reasons which add alongside the philosophical reasons why a full statute is probably not going to happen. The judge is sort of offering something which he thinks might be sort of supportive of the freedom of the press, something along the lines of the sort of Constitutional Reform Act of 2005 and, and the judiciary, which is a sort of, a, a, you know, a sort of a single clause, if you will, in a, 
in a Leveson bill, if it were to come, that would again sort of enshrine the freedom of the press in statute. I mean, that could be on the way to a sort of a British First Amendment. Is that not a prize that's interesting? I think it's definitely interesting. I think the problem is, again, not so much, and that really might answer the philosophical objection, it doesn't answer the practical objection, because you're still left with trying to define for legislative purposes what you can count as a UK newspaper. And that is phenomenally difficult to do because ultimately if you put something in statute that has a requirement or a compulsion to it, you will have to do something if people resist that compulsion. And that means you have to set up a framework to enforce something against someone's will. That, I think, is very, very difficult, bearing in mind these jurisdictional issues. And lastly, what do you do about Richard Desmond or the Desmond problem? How do you ensure everybody stays in? I mean, Lord Hunt seems to think that he can sort of charm every, everybody. In. Does that cut it? What, the Lord Hunt charm? Uh, no, I think that his, his, his model of contracts, I think, is a way of buttressing it a little bit more. I think the, day, the argument for universality, enforced universality, is gone. You can't do it. Now, for it to be credible... You, you can't do it, why? Because you can't decide, define what a newspaper is? I think you can't define what a newspaper, and then if you define what a newspaper is, you've then got to have some sort of statutory framework to enforce. And like I say, that, I think that's relatively difficult. I think the, the Hunt idea of contracts gives extra reinforcement, which is, uh, which is only to be, to be helped. But there will always be people outside of the tent. I mean, private eye. It's not necessarily just the Richard Desmond problem. Private eye aren't in. Now, you can make a very strong argument that a satirical anti-establishment magazine should not be in. But in which case, what's the ben- what, what criteria are you using to say who should be in and who should be out? I think it has to be an encouraged membership where people should see the benefit of being in, where you, you, you expand as far as possible so there's a merit to being in, which is why things like Kite Marks and, and, and Reynolds Defence and things like that are all to be pushed, I think. Because if you find a, a, a real good reason to get people in most people will be in but if you want to sort of wake up one morning and see there's a very nice neat and tidy package which counts everyone in i just don't think that's going to happen that was stig abel there talking to dan Saber. um lisa they were talking there about the uh, the difficulties of, uh, of the future framework for, for press regulation what did you make of it it's interesting and of course it's been discussed at length over the last month at Leveson but the one thing that Stig didn't mention there which is a really contentious issue for a lot of people is and which will really distinguish between an old and a new press regulator is um, the influence of working editors and the number and the dominance of working ed- editors on the new regulating, regulatory board and this arbitration unit and I think that has got to be teased out more um, because there was a feeling that the PCC, the reason, one of the reasons why it failed was because it was a cosy gentleman's club. As Richard Desmond said, that it was basically the mates of News International and the mates of Associated, Paul Dacre and Les Hinton, kind of ran it and they adjudicated. And there were some uh, witnesses over the last few weeks at Leveson who said there was absolutely, like Ofcom notably, said there was absolutely no need for working editors to be on the board that sets the code. Sam, um, Dan Saber and Stig Abel also touched on the issue of public interest, the age-old thing about you know public interest versus interest of the public. As a former editor of a celebrity magazine, what, what's your take on this? It's interesting. What you can judge any regulatory board, whether there is you know actual legislation that governs the way in which things can be reported or not, one thing that you cannot control short of having some kind of prefect in every newsroom in the country is 
reporting techniques. So what you can have is you can have legislation that can um, punish people who have published in stories that are proven to be kind of inappropriate, not in the public interest or, or anything else. Strikes me that whatever the outcome of Leveson and whatever the, def the semantic definitions we come up with after all this chatting about public interest and, and things that interest the public is you can only punish or monitor the outcomes, i.e. the stories that are published. What it's much more difficult to do is look at the ways in which every single story is put together because what you might get is a story that the outcome of it the way in which it's printed in a paper or appears online you know is not really subject to any kind of rebuke but that's not to say that the methods employed by reporters along the way were you know scandalous unethical nasty whatever you want to call them how do you monitor that you only get to dig into those sorts of things when the story itself becomes the subject of an investigation but there are stories that come out every day that seem relatively innocent but you don't know what what kind of like hijinks has gone into the reporting of those stories and it strikes me you can never control that in a busy fast moving newsroom regardless of what medium that is and you never know what tactics and I'm not you know I'm not saying they're prevalent everywhere but I mean you know we've all worked in newsrooms where at high speeds things happen and you don't it, literally the only way I can think of it is like you've got a tennis judge sat on a high chair in the middle of every newsroom watching what everyone's doing because Lisa currently the PCC code is meant to govern how journalists go about getting their stories but as Leveson has found out you know not many people not many people necessarily know about it and the, those who do haven't necessarily signed up to it so it's, it's not well inter interesting um, he also touched on this issue of whether there are two different processes um, of news gathering in tabloids and broadsheets, for want of a better two terms. As somebody said after, after the News International QC, Rodri Davy summed up where he made this very interesting point that they had done wrong. The phone hacking was um, disgraceful. They apologised. They had learned their lesson. They weren't going to determine. They weren't going to learn it twice. Um, what had happened um, had been done in the pursuit of truth. And I spoke to one of the lawyers afterwards. There were a few sniggers in Court 73. But one of the seasoned newspaper lawyers said it was something that had to be said because there was a time when how a journalist got a story really didn't bother people. And there are now so many laws governing news gathering. And there were big developments this week in the phone hacking investigation. Um, Rebecca Brooks and Andy Colson were among eight people charged with phone hacking this week, Lisa. Yeah, that's right. Um, seven journalists formerly with News International News of the World and uh, Glenn Mulcair, the private investigator. So, um, yeah, very, very high profile. I think he surprised everybody. Brooks and Coulson, of course, being the two, two most high profile and they're all already facing other charges in relation to their newspaper careers um, and they've been charged with hacking the phone of uh, Millie Dowler. They both deny this and deny it um, strenuously. But I think, yeah, it was interesting, the other names, the victims ranging from Freddie Windsor to Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt to Charles Clark, David Blunkett. Um, there are about 600 people who um, are linked to the charges in relation to these eight people. And this shows that, you know, the phone, the scandal's not going to go away anytime soon. You know, it's going to remain very much in the, in the, in the public eye. It's when it's in the public eye is, is when you can do the most. When they, you know, if, if they're looking to pass legislation or introduce new regulations, that that's when you can get away with it. I sometimes think that maybe because of the deep pockets of the news international lawyers, you know, they can keep this going for as long as possible until interest fizzles out and it comes off the front pages and there is less public sympathy for kind of you know hanging, drawing and quartering the the the, the, the alleged culprits for all of this stuff. Personally, what I think is is that, you know, from my background uh, and my experience working in the celebrity magazine market is that the biggest impact this will have on that kind of area is that 
I truly believe that everyone in the country who's ever picked up a tabloid newspaper or a celeb magazine or something similar is fully aware in their subconscious of the kind of techniques that have been used years. I mean, so, you know, it's a cliche that has existed for many years, not in people who are necessarily media literate, but just in the minds of the public that reporters go through celebrities' rubbish, for instance, or paparazzi hide inside people's garages or whatever it is. You know, uh, but I kind of compare this whole process of us all watching Leveson and seeing it reported in the news every day, as far as the general public are concerned, as taking a meat eater to an abattoir, right? You always knew that dodgy stuff went into sausages, but now you've actually seen them being made. You can never eat one again, right? So what it's done in the celebrity market and to some tabloids is it's taken away what I used to call the soft celebrity consumers, i.e. not the ones who are addicted, who have sort of a significant demographic, but the ones who topped up the readership of magazines like Heat and also of newspapers like News of the World were the ones who thought it was a bit of a laugh and it was ironic and they would stick it inside their copy of the Sunday Times or their copy of The Observer because they'd like a little bit of tongue-in-cheek indulging themselves in celebrity coverage and scandal and all that sort of thing. That kind of demographic is what make, turns your sales from quite good to extremely good. You know, turn things, turn briefly the magazines like Heat and others into publishing phenomena because they had a large demographic on top of the kind of real devotees. They had the sort of tongue-in-cheek ones. You thought, this is all a bit of a laugh, I can dodge this. They're stopping buying these things now and they're stopping buying tabloids on Sundays and the sales show that. And why? It's because they always knew what went on. But over the last year or so, however long it's been, it's been like that scene in The Clockwork Orange where your eyes are peeled back and you are forced to see the, the, what goes on behind the scenes of these stories that you think are just fun. And you feel uncomfortable spending your money on that sort of stuff. As a result, sales go down. And that, for me, regardless of what comes out of Leveson, is what you can see now is having the biggest impact on that kind of that that genre of reporting. It's all moved to the internet, hasn't it? Look at the Mail Online, phenomenally successful. TMZ, yeah. Perez Hilton. You know, Perez Hilton. You hardly hear about now because Mail Online. You know what? Is so Ma- dominant. Ma- Mail Online, I always think is is massively dominant. But I think the key thing, not the only thing, but the key thing, with Mail Online is the speed with which they turn around pictures and that whole industry now. For a young audience especially, it's about pictures, 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 pictures. Who's got a new look? Who's been on the beach in a bikini? Whose body can we see that day? You know, no one reads the sort of often vitriolic copy on the Mail Online, but they have an amazing operation in terms of the, the pictures that they get and put up fastest and turn into amusing or distracting features very, very quickly. Well, that and that heat, also... That was drink for heat, wasn't it? Pictures was... Pictures, was, was, yeah, exactly. And scandal doesn't fly as much anymore, you know? pictures is for a young audience they're fascinated in everything from body image issues to who's got a new haircut to who's got a new hot boyfriend and it was heat stock in trade but everyone heat and everyone else has been outstripped now by the the sheer sight the scale of operation that the mail online is running but i happen to think it's a much more innocent form of showbiz reporting than the kind of scandal so-called investigative style of reporting that used to define kind of celebrity gossip and if you look at the mail online on their showbiz homepage, which, as you say, is an international, a global phenomena, it's innocent stuff. Actually, the words aren't, because it's often quite judgmental and horrid, the things they say about the pictures. But the pictures themselves, this is not scandalous. This is not, look at this junkie falling out with a syringe in her arm in an alley. You know, this is just like, look at this girl off of The Only Way is Essex. She's got a new bikini and she's lost weight. I mean, you know. I feel the hits rolling. Yeah, that's that's what generates hits now, and those kind of the more CD style of story, for whatever reason, I th- I happen to think is partly to do with the stuff we've seen at Leveson. It just doesn't fly with consumers. 
Well, there's uh, more on phone hacking at mediaguardian.co.uk and more bikinis at Mail Online. Sam is still with us, and I'm joined for this part of the show by Vicky Frost, The Guardian's TV and radio editor. Vicky, how are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Well, I, am, I, well, I have in my hand a piece of paper. In fact, I have in my hand a uh, bumper Radio Times. I hope you pick that up. Uh, we'll put in a proper special effect later. <laughs> that, that is my uh, complete 16-day TV guide to the Olympics. And, uh, Vicky, I've, I've read this, and I'm worried I've not done enough preparation because <laughs> there's a lot of TV. Well, no, there's a lot of Olympics, um, which might not be entirely the same thing as a lot of TV for people who aren't interested in the Olympics. But yes, I mean, basically, BBC One now just becomes the Olympics. And so does BBC Three, which is going to be broadcasting all day. And then there are 24 HD channels available via the website and extra channels if you have Freeview and Virgin and Sky, etc. There is no way you can miss the Olympics, any part of the Olympics, in fact, that you... Uh, don't want you know if you want to see it you can pretty much I think it's 2,500 hours of coverage in total any danger of overkill here well you know what it depends on on the weather to what extent we'll think there's overkill because you know I'm going to be away in Suffolk on on a sort of a holiday staycation for a couple of weeks of it and if it's sunny then you'll think oh it's overkill they've got all this stuff what they got on now you know like we were talking earlier they've got BMX in Olympic BMX in or you know Olympic tiddlywinks whatever it is and you'll think it's overkill however if it's raining then I think it'll be fantastic you know it'll make up for the rainy summer because you'll sit there and it'll give you something to um, you know indulge yourself in for a few weeks The, the real overkill is I saw Gary Lineker last night he did a little sort of promo halfway through the Team GB football match about all of the stuff you can access online. Do you know much about this, Vicky? I mean, it's absolutely unreal. And you could yeah. tell Lineker even laughed when it went back live into the studio. He sort of laughed as if to say, I've got no idea what any of that meant. Because it was such an elaborate and vast scheme that they have online for how... I, it's something whereby I think it's almost like where you it, you yourself as a viewer can sort of take part nothing short of taking part in Olympic fencing if you press the red button or something well, like that that's the challenge Vicky how, I mean how do you navigate around 24 uh, you know dedicated Olympics channels I mean I struggle you know with one to five frankly I, I think the BBC have done a very bad job of communicating what's actually on offer I mean I had to really go and find out and it took me quite a long time to work out what on earth was going on and where it was available and you, that just shouldn't be the case it's a bit like it feels like they've thrown everything at kind of creating 24 HD channels online, which is brilliant and everything. But nobody really knows they're there, I think. The, you know, the it's thing a bit is weird. About the Olympics is that it lacks an obvious structure. Euro 2012, group stage, court final, semi-finals, final, right? So, you know, it's got, a, it's got a narrative. It's got a natural narrative where the drama builds. The Olympics feels like a million different sports. I've no idea how it's all structured in terms of rounds or heats and how we build out. All anyone really knows is that towards the end, there's a 100 metres final. That always feels like the final of the Olympics, doesn't it? Everyone thinks that's like the World Cup final of the Olympics, and, it, and it's yeah, obviously over in a matter of seconds sort of thing. But beyond that, no one knows the build-up, so it's that kind of thing that you do. It's made for just idly tuning in, seeing what's going on. You're not quite sure what any of it means, but hopefully you can become immersed in a really elaborate table tennis or badminton match if you're in the right frame of mind. But in terms of structure, literally no one knows how the Olympic works. Yeah, and also there's not really proper highlights programmes this year. You know, like sort of like, so for Beijing, it was kind of like, I think possibly because of the time difference, you watched the highlights package every night, basically. That's That's what you did. 
Whereas this is a bit different. It just feels like it's just broadcasting all the time, basically. Because it was still going on, weren't it, into prime time and beyond, you know, live Olympics. Yeah, exactly, you know, and it would just keep on going and keep on going. And then there's no real point where it feels like it's properly pulled together, basically, during the day. So this is why the Olympics scares me. Here we go. This is uh, from my Radio Times. Other listings magazines are available. This is uh, Wednesday the 1st of August. So this is just on BBC One. 7.30, men's 200 breaststroke final. 7.38, women's 100 metre freestyle. 7.47, men's 200 metre backstroke. 8.09. I mean, how, how do they even know these things are going to happen, let alone me tune in to watch them? You know, it's absurdly just, specific as yeah. well, isn't it? The uh, the minutes, they're really... <laughs> it's bonkers listing I've yeah. ever heard. I, I, I just have swimming. And what day is that as well? There's finals what? come... This is the thing about the structure of this event of the Olympics is that for you know one day there's a final of one sport the next day there's the first heat of another sport can't they just make it a little bit more linear so it's easier for us to understand last time round Sam there's lots of controversy about the uh, the length of um, Sharon Davis's shorts which are apparently too short yeah. too much yeah. leg well, sticking with the leg thing, can you see a, a potential Achilles heel in the, what the BBC's well, I'm, I'm got coming up? I'm hoping for controversy, and I'm sure Danny Cohen will be too, because you need that sort of thing to make a sideshow that sort of focuses the story on the broadcast output as opposed to the events themselves. So who knows, he may be surreptitiously advising Garth Crooks to wear over short shorts right now, <laughs> just so we can have another short gate. Or perhaps they're thinking more imaginatively this time, perhaps it won't be shorts, perhaps someone will turn up wearing a, a, a string vest or something. Nobody can tell, but I will hope to see something. Lineker seems to be fronting a lot of it. I like um, Lineker, but my thing with Gary Lineker is he always seems to struggle to get out of second gear. You know, I never feel a huge amount of enthusiasm uh, coming out of his he, pause. He does do that sort of like really laid back thing. And I think yeah. also, I feel like I've seen a lot of him because of the Euros. You know, it feels like we've only just finished him sort of going on all the time, basically. And now he's back to do some more. And I slightly wonder about that. It feels like the BBC is almost doing the PR for the Olympics at the moment. And I think... You know, in this build-up, there's been so much from them. You know, like news bulletins. It's been kind of like really important world events. And we went to East London today for hours, you know. And it's yeah. they need to kind of, I think, find a voice for it. Because at the moment, it feels like they're, they're sort of struggling a little bit. It feels like they're overdoing it. Which, of course, once the game starts, that might seem completely wrong. And everyone might be very excited and beside it. But at the moment, you know, it doesn't... It feels like they're slightly struggling to find their voice on it. The Olympics, right? Everyone feels under a lot of pressure, not least the BBC, to show how into it they are because it's almost like you're being traitorous to your country and the Queen unless you're really massively into the Olympics. But what the BBC's tone comes across as sometimes is like uh, you've gone on a camping trip with your parents when you're a kid. It's it's really rainy. The sandwiches are soaked through. It's clearly totally rubbish. So your mum or dad are really going over the top with the enthusiasm. They go, come on, kids, it's going to be great. It's literally going to be the best thing ever, right? And then waving a flag in your face. And you'll go, look, come on. It might be all right. We might be able to salvage something, but don't patronise us like this. Okay? Don't, we're not idiots. As soon as the events get started... Everyone will become immersed in it and that will be enough. But there's something about a fanfare around an event when everyone's telling you to get really excited. Nothing will do more to make you almost cynically, willfully be as unexcited as you can be. It's organised fun, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Organised fun is always flawed. And we should ask Sam how how you're doing the Olympics on on TalkSport. Uh, Very well. We're doing it. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> it, it's really? tricky, isn't it? Because you got yeah. this, you got this big event going on, but obviously, well, I, you know, I right, do think so. the tone and voice are. You know, most people on on Talksport, what we try to do is just be extremely honest. And so, what you will never get is any contrived opinions or contrived enthusiasm about that sort of thing. Now, the events that people are very passionate about. You know, and and it will vary from one host to the other because there's never any kind of blanket policy on the station about, you know, a line, so to speak, about what everyone needs to take. People will talk about the things they like and if a, and if a subject comes up that they've got no interest in, because it's impossible for everyone to have an interest in and a passion about all of these myriad events that are taking place. I feel that, you know, on a national broadcast like BBC, then there is almost like an obligation amongst their, you know, hosts to kind of be equally passionate and enthusiastic about every event, whether that be, you know, the, the Greco-Roman wrestling or the BMX and everything in between. Whereas, to be honest, on TalkSport, it's just like, you're going to go, I've, I've got no interest in the ping pong whatsoever, to be honest, I don't know anything about it. Well, one thing that was definitely more entertaining than ping pong, uh, if you're not a ping pong fan, of course, was 2012, Vicky, which came to an end on BBC Two this week. A triumphant run, by all accounts. Yes, I think it has been a triumphant run, and sort of the closer it's got to the Olympics, the more things have come true. You know, the last episode, for instance, you know, it featured this thing called the Big Bong, which was totally ludicrous. You know, it was about, you know, we're going to commission a church, ring of church bells, there's going to be a competition. It was very funny. And then I came into work the next morning and someone was saying, okay, so there's this thing that's going to happen where we all ring bells. And it's like, what? This is bonkers. (laughs) It's kind of, you know, it's been so good, I think, in that way. And, you know, the whole mix-up with the Korean flag could just have come straight out of the script it was amazing that nobody from 2012 was actually involved with it and it it was almost amazing that nobody from 2012 popped up on tv to apologize for it it felt you know it's so good like that and um boris johnson could is you know possibly reading from a 2012 script occasionally Well, yes, he, he is a caricature anyway, and he'd have been perfect in it, really. Yeah, so it was it was very well done, I thought, the end of it. You know, the whole lovely Ian and Sally, will they, won't they romance was left hanging, which I really loved. And it kind of, I'm sad to say goodbye to some of the characters, like Siobhan Sharp, who is, um, well, you know, the thing is, the thing is, she's great. But I think, you know, there's been talk about should she get her own spin-off, but in a way, I think that would sort of spoil it, because I want to just see five minutes of her in with everything else I don't want to see her for too long because I think you'll go bonkers although obviously more of Karl Marx her fabulous skibby would have been great mm-hmm. Sam I guess they can't really commission a second series well a third series I should say I think you call it 2013 I guess yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the tragedy of it because it's been one of the best comedies for a few years now and then it came to an end it was almost a bit emotional it was funny how they did insert a bit of emotion to the last episode which is not something that you would expect from a show like that but there was a moment where Ian made a speech kind of a slightly awkward but heartfelt speech about what they'd achieved. And then, of course, the cliffhanger, the romantic cliffhanger as well. And you sort of think, oh, they've done a bit of emotion. They've got away with it because they get away with it because we've all, you know, developed a big attachment to the show. So you can kind of accept them doing a bit of an American schmaltz at the end of it. Uh, It's a shame to see it go. But I think, you know, Vicky makes a good point. The, The interesting thing about it is mockumentaries have been done many times to tremendous effect. But I think that what makes... 2012 stand out from the others including the thick of it and veep i mean if you look at the thick of it or veep the then what they do is they rely a lot on sweary gymnastics which is fine we all like that but also they often overstep the line of plausibility on purpose to make particularly absurd events take place you know in the corridors of power like where in Veep recently she she soiled herself in the back of a car and all that. And you sort of think, okay, they've purposefully gone a bit farther. What 2012 does is it's hilarious without ever straying beyond the realms of plausibility. The humour comes out of it being 
so authentically real, like forensically real on every level, to the extent that, as Vicky rightly says, the things actually take place that are, are, are more absurd in real life than are happening in 2012. So they never, they can create humour out of just re- reality without ever straying into being absurd, which I think is so smart. And that's what's made it one of the greatest comedies we've had in the last decade, I think. It's been brilliant as well, the way, you know, the clock stopped and then the clock stopped. And then, you know, we've had the coach getting lost. You know, they had the coach getting lost on the way to the yeah. Olympic Park. It has been sort of quite astonishing how spot on they've been yeah. with everything that's gone wrong. Final word this week goes to Downton Abbey, which is, uh, you've had a sneaky preview of the uh, first episode of the third yes. series. Yes, I have. It's back in September and I can't tell you a lot because I mustn't spoil storylines. But what I will say is Shirley MacLaine comes in as Cora's mother and um, her and Maggie Smith on screen together being formidable is absolutely fantastic. It, I would, you can't not enjoy it, I think. That's brilliant. And, you know, after a really quite disappointing second series, I thought, and then a really great Christmas episode, I'm really glad to say that this, I think, is much more on the standard of the Christmas episode than of the second series. So it feels like there's a bit of a return to form. Do they shoehorn any Olympics into it? Because <laughs> you wouldn't put it past them, would you? No, you wouldn't <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for this week. My thanks to all my guests, Sam Delaney, Lisa O'Carroll, Vicky Frost, and also to Dan Saber, and, of course, Stig able comment on anything and indeed everything you've heard on our facebook wall or our blog my name's john plunkett the producer was matt hill thanks for listening for more great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio guardian podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk for a free download be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible where guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free see the page for more details